Hello and welcome to Stephanomics, the podcast that brings the global economy to you. The Indian economy has grown by at least 6 or 7% in nearly every one of the past 20 years. That's almost double the growth rate it achieved in its first 50 years as an independent state. But somehow that success isn't translating into jobs. In fact, less than half of the working population is working or even actively looking for work. And the vast majority of Indian women are out of the workforce altogether. So what's going wrong? And how important will it be for the newly elected Prime Minister Narendra Modi to fix it? Well, in a few minutes, I'll talk about it with Bloomberg columnist and writer Mihir Sharma. I'll also have some brand new research on exactly how the US-China trade wars and tariffs are destroying economic activity in the US, China and other countries. But first, here's my colleague Anirban Nag, who took a closer look at India's job shortage with fellow reporter Vrishti Beniwal. That is the busy Prabhadevi station here in central Mumbai, where thousands of commuters mill in and out during the morning rush hour. The Indian railways are famous as one of the biggest employers in the world, and this particular station is being manned by a station master, booking clerks, and a few sweepers. These jobs don't pay much, but a staggering 28 million applied to do one of them recently when the department that runs the railways announced 90,000 vacancies. One of those who tried to get a railway job was Suresh Kumar. I wanted to stick to a job with computers, but it's so difficult to land a job. If someone knows you, then you get a job. Otherwise, it's next to impossible. We met Suresh near his one-room rented a house that is a stone's throw away from an open drain and part of one of the most densely populated colonies of Delhi. He's medium-built, and dressed up for work in a formal cotton shirt and trousers. It's morning, but he's already starting to sweat in the Indian summer, where temperatures can soar past 110 degrees Fahrenheit. He's 30 years old and holds a diploma in computing from a private institute. But he's working as someone's driver. His wife is a maid. He was hoping for more than that when he moved here from India's central region of Madhya Pradesh but he recognizes he's one of the lucky ones. Back in the village, there is so much poverty, we can't even open our own business. And there are no banks to offer us support with loans. In Delhi, at least you can get a job. I am driving, as I have a home to run and send kids to school. Suresh has a job, but he's underemployed. India's economy is not getting the best out of him. 12 million Indians enter the labor market each year and an increasing number of them are underemployed like Suresh or not in work at all. It was like the end week of December that we were told that, we'll, that they will be letting go of 50 to 70% of the staff and then from there try and see if they can survive this stretch. 
which also did not happen because in April almost everybody was asked to go. We found a woman we'll call Alia because she did not want us to use her real name. We met up in Bloomberg's office in New Delhi where she lives. Alia, who is in her mid-thirties, lost her job as a marketing and communications manager after her company's sales failed to gain traction just as the country was put through a huge challenge of changing much of the currency in circulation. Did they tell you what was the reason for that? No, they just th- told that they were not able to kind of uh, sustain the operations that they were having. Her mother isn't aware she has lost her job. Though her father knows the truth and can sometimes get despondent about her job prospects. Alia says she has been able to get some work here and there. She has even managed to repay a car loan, but it has been tough. I take up freelance projects from time to time, um, and I try to, and obviously try to find, uh, you know, anything that I can apply to. So what I mostly get as a response is that either there are too many aspirants vying for a singular job, and so the competition is obviously increased. A part of it is also given to the fact that you know I'm looking for a job role which is into a mid-management kind of position and not a pressure level, and uh, also the fact that you know the plans keep changing, a uh, lot of uh, positions that are that are actually they think are available go on hold for no reason. There's a lot of uncertainty in terms of organization, in terms of what they they are planning for the next six months to a year of time. Alia is part of the official jobless numbers, and that is probably the tip of the iceberg. The bigger problem is that half the working age population, and 82% of women, are not even included in that official jobless total, but they're not looking for work at all. India is not the only developing country struggling to bring women into the workforce. What is troubling? is that the situation has been getting worse even as the overall economy has been doing quite well according to the world bank nearly 20 million women a number roughly equivalent to the population of sri lanka dropped out of the workforce between 2005 and 2012 economists tell us that this is an enormous missed opportunity but don't take their word for it ask christine lagarde the head of the international monetary fund you can increase uh, us gdp by 5% but you can increase indian gdp by 27% uh, if you look at diversification we have now documented evidence of the fact that when women participate in the economy and in the labor market as much as men do you have a more diversified economy and by bringing women uh, to the to the labor market giving them access to finance you reduce the inequality what would that take in india we asked santosh mehrotra a professor at new delhi's jawaharlal nehru university he's an expert in employment and labor issues for girls if we want to make sure that uh, they get jobs uh, then we have to ensure that uh, child care affordable child care is much more easily available um, public transport is uh, much safer than it has been in the past um and above all of course 
job growth, non-agricultural job growth has to happen uh, in construction, in manufacturing and in services. You wouldn't know there's a problem from the latest election results. Prime Minister Narendra Modi won the country's massive vote last month with an even larger majority than before. But he does recognize the issue. One of the first decisions after taking office for a second five-year term was to form a committee of senior ministers to try and address rising unemployment. Alia says it's high time they deal with the issue because it's a lot bigger than the numbers indicate. Kumar, the driver, blames India's education system for the lack of opportunities. My English is weak. In the villages, they don't teach much English. I started studying English only in the fifth grade and not the first. If I have to blame anyone, it is perhaps myself. Also, I think I should have more qualifications or degrees. The lack of suitable opportunities for someone like Kumar risks tarnishing the country's image as a major investment destination. Not only that, there's a chance of social unrest. Above all, it poses a challenge to policymakers who are keen to reap the demographic dividend of a young population, which means it can be a major drive of economic growth. The time is ticking though. By 2014, the share of India's population to that of working age will start declining. India will have to act fast if it has to harness that demographic dividend by providing jobs to millions sooner rather than later. Kumar thinks it's already too late for him, but he's still holding out hope for the next generation. I have given up hopes of getting a better job. I will get along with whatever it takes. The kids should have better prospects. So I'm very happy now that I can speak to one of uh, Bloomberg's key India columnists, uh, Mihir Sharma, uh, about what this means for India's economy and what Prime Minister Modi might be able to do about it going forward, having just been re-elected last month. Uh, Mihir, I guess one question people might be asking. I started the programme mentioning that India was an economy that had grown six or seven percent a year, pretty much every year for the last 20 years. How has it done so well while not finding jobs for maybe half of its working age population? I think the the real joblessness is a relatively recent phenomenon. The real jobless growth is a relatively recent phenomenon. Um, Up to around 2011, I think jobs were getting created. Uh, A lot of those were in, for example, the construction sector, which has traditionally managed to soak up large numbers of relatively underskilled people particularly from rural areas, in a rapidly expanding urban economy. Around 2011 or 2012, the economy begins to slow. You know, you have the crisis, then you have the post-crisis stimulus, and then when the stimulus overreaches in around 2012, the economy slows, investment slows. For some reason, um, that slowing is reflected in the job growth numbers, uh, both official and unofficial, but is not showing up as much as one would expect in the new GDP statistics, which has led many people, as it, as it happens, to start questioning India's growth figures themselves. But the truth is that 
from uh, after liberalization in 1991, the first 10, 15, even 20 years were pretty good for jobs. Not as great as they could have been, but not bad. It's really in the past seven or so years that we've begun to see something of a crisis. And if you look at the structure of growth, I mean, is it, is it to do with the composition of growth that you're not getting the jobs? I like, our, our, uh, our economist uh, at Bloomberg, uh, Abhishek Gupta, has looked at how, in a sense, the whole is not necessarily in the manufacturing side, it's in service sector and the inability to, inability to unleash the service sector. Is that a big part of it? No country in history has been able to um, incorporate unskilled people from the rural economy into a growing middle class in, with secure jobs without building a manufacturing sector. Mm. It is possible, surely, perhaps, to, to do it without, but unless you've got oil or something, you can't, there's no, there's no roadmap. It's never been done before. India has been de-industrializing since the late 90s which means that uh, the, the contribution of industry to GDP peaked in around 96 and 97, and since then it has been going down. That's not okay, um, because what that gets replaced with is, of course, an increase in the proportion of, uh, of uh, the service sector in GDP. And the service sector is not, you know, uh, we're not talking um, high-level you know, IT stuff here, all right? That may be the image of India, but what the service sector actually is is very, very small enterprises, one person, two person, three people working together. In the Prime Minister's words, even a guy frying up dumplings is also a job, right? But those aren't the kind of jobs I think that people think about when they want them, and those aren't the kind of jobs that create a sustainable middle class. There is really no answer even right now as to what could replace mass manufacturing, export-oriented mass manufacturing, as a creator of jobs. So I know you like giving Prime Minister Modi advice, which he doesn't follow, but, <laughs> but we shouldn't necessarily stop now. Uh, if you've just been re-elected and have some pressure on you, maybe surprisingly not as much pressure as you might think. I think if less than half of the working age population in the UK or the US were in work, there would be, that would be the only issue on the horizon. I see that that's not really the case in India. But if you're under pressure to deliver um, after this... Uh, election victory, what levers can he pull? I mean, what, what would be the key reform areas that you would think of to try and change how much jobs are being created? I think there are three things that you need to do almost immediately because time is running out for all of them. The first is to substantively change what are called factor markets, so uh, the markets for land and labor in particular. Um, it's very difficult to fire people in India, which is why very few people hire them. We have incredibly small textile production facilities. Like our textile factories are, you know, maybe an average of 15 or 16 people in India, as opposed to over two to 300 in, just in Bangladesh next door. And so we are uncompetitive when it comes to uh, producing textiles, which is a labor-intensive sector. Um, so you need to change the laws that constrain the sale of land, that constrain hiring and firing workers. That's point one. Point two is that you have to ensure that you get embedded into global supply chains. Currently, India is, like many other countries around the world, 
moving in a somewhat protectionist direction. We're putting up tariffs on you know, things like mobile phones. And the idea there is to try and create a domestic electronics manufacturing uh, sector. But obviously, we know that's not going to happen because of the way that, that manufacturing is now organized globally. Um, so you have to embed yourself in these uh, global uh, supply chains rather than you know, extracting yourself from them. And the third, and I think really the most important at this point, is that you need to work on basic educational and skills. We have some of the worst schools in the world. According to many studies, there are kids in class eight, in, the, you know, in their eighth year of schooling, in the eighth grade, who cannot do maths at a second grade level, and that's the majority. So you need to intervene both at the primary level and with those who've already left school and are, and are currently underskilled. So those interventions have to be massive and immediate, the educational ones. And you did mention, um, we heard at the, the, the end of that segment as well, this question of the time pressure. Um, you know, you might think India had all the time in the world, given the scale of its economy and the number of people. But this key demographic point that you have a sweet spot as an economy where you have a sort of peak a number of working age people with fewer children, having fewer children, but no longer, not, not getting older yet. How important is it? for India to get this right before it starts seeing that demographic change and the ageing that we've seen in it, obviously in other countries? So one of the crucial questions in, in development is, can a country get rich before it gets old? Right, and uh, the truth is that uh, we are a, a much younger country than a lot of others. We're, uh, our average age is still in the 20s, whereas in China it is 37, Japan is 47. But that obviously won't last forever. As birth rates begin to fall going forward, our average age will increase, which means that the proportion of people in the working age population, as opposed to those out of it, will begin to fall. Right now, we are seeing a lot of growth and a lot of dynamism, precisely because that working age population is increasing in composition, in size, in proportion. That will not be the case going forward. And the bad news is, it is already the case that we are facing demographic pressure in some of the more advanced and developed parts of India. States along the coast in the south of India, which have uh, higher human capital levels, which are more integrated with the global economy, um, which have better skills, those areas are in fact already beginning to see this demographic change. They're getting older where population growth is really coming from, where we have our current youth bulge, all these working age population, working age people applying for these jobs in the railways and so on and so forth, that's in the north, in the interior, and that's not, that's not a part of the country that is properly connected uh, to the global economy, it's not connected to markets, these are people who are underskilled. So we, there is this a regional disparity in how things are turning out that is also a problem. Uh, some people listening may have the same experience that I have, that the, the, the Indian business people that one sees at conferences or uh, interviewed often on Bloomberg or any, and anywhere else, you get the sense of an incredibly dynamic economy, really digitally switched on, uh, developing things that actually are ahead in many cases of uh, advanced economies on the digital front. Um, and even on applying it to uh, some public sector challenges. Is that just, are we seeing just a tiny fraction? Because if you listen to those people, you would think, wow, India is going to be able to ride the wave of all these technological changes that are happening around the world that everyone fears. India is going to clean up 
uh, as a result of those changes? Well, I mean, there are two things to be said there. The first is um, one should never trust what people in Indian business say, <laughs> only what they do. And when they start investing in India, then I will take their claims that India, uh, India has a bright future seriously. We have a crisis in private investment. It's been shrinking for, for years as a proportion of GDP. And that doesn't appear to have cleared up yet. So they don't appear to have confidence in where they're putting their money. So I don't believe anything they say uh, about, you know, when, when they make all these sort of claims about India's future. The other thing about, you know, can India ride the, you know, automation, digital wave of the future? Everybody else is worrying because they're losing jobs. I don't know. I suppose you can be more optimistic about it when you've never had the jobs in the first place. If you see the entire world moving towards an economy, you know, which is precarious, where nobody has a real job, where you have to work three things, and, you know, you have service sector jobs that don't pay enough. Well, we've lived that already. But the truth is that we are worse off because we need to at least have a phase of those manufacturing jobs in order to build the middle class that can then complain. Uh, we've never built the middle class that can complain, so you're not hearing any complaining. <laughs> well, uh, Mihir, that's, I, many people who read your columns would say that's a characteristically blunt assessment of the situation for India's economy. But thanks very much for joining us. Thanks, Jim. So some people would say that we talk too much about trade wars on this podcast, but we have a lot to say about them. And uh, this week is no exception because we have a really interesting analysis by our economists who are part of Bloomberg Economics of the impact that trade wars are having already, particularly in China, but also on production levels and sales in the US. And I'm very glad that I can talk a bit with one of the people who uh, crunched the numbers on this, one of our Eurozone economist Meva Kuzar. Meva, thank you very much uh, for joining us from Zurich. Hi Stephanie, thanks for inviting me. So tell me a little bit about this research because what was interesting to me is that although often people have talked about the big picture potential impact of trade wars on global growth, you took a, a micro approach looking at the imports that have been affected by tariffs. And what did you find? So yes, we used very detailed data from the US International Trade Commission and we looked at the different um, categories, the 6,000 plus categories of products that have been uh, imposed some tariffs by the US on US on um, imports from China. And what we found first is that when you look at the value of uh, imports from China across those categories, which have been tariffed since July to September 2018, July to September last year, if you look at the time series, you can see a sharp drop, which happens uh, just after the introduction of the different waves of tariffs. And in total, if you look at the value of uh, US imports from China across those categories in the first quarter of 2019, so after the introduction of all the tariffs or the first wave of tariffs, and you compare with what happened a year earlier, this value on those goods is down by 26%, that's $15.8 billion worth of Chinese imports that have not entered the US across, um, across those, those products. What's interesting as well is that when you look, we looked at what happened to imports of those products from the rest of the world, they have increased a little bit, but only by $5.4 billion in the year to uh, the first quarter of 2019. So in total, it's a gap of $10.4 billion worth of imports that has not entered the US on those uh, categories that have been tariffed. 
for China. Have you seen any evidence of this sort of diversion of trade as a result of these tariffs, that you're just getting the same products coming in from other countries rather than a reduction in imports overall? So we've seen a little bit of that, indeed, of diverge, diversion from the, away from China and to other countries. Um, as you can see, because there's still a 10 billion gap in, in imports across those categories, it has only partly offset the impact of lower trade with China. But we've seen some of that. We've seen in particular, if you look across the main um, trade partners for the US and the main countries in the Asian supply chain, countries like Vietnam, Vietnam Taiwan, and uh, South Korea have seen an acceleration uh, of their exports to the of their exports to the US. I noticed in your report that they also looked like there were just some sort of creative ways around uh, these tariffs that were being found. Like, for example, there was a big surge in the number of TVs coming in from China to the US, which are not subject to tariffs, and a reduction in the number of TV parts coming in because those are subject to tariffs. Um, But you would say that there's still been a real impact on Chinese producers. Yes, I think so. I think there has been a little bit of moving across categories from from tariffs categories to non-tariff categories at the margin. But overall, I think that's a net drop. And indeed, um, total Chinese imports total imports from China to the US across tariffed and non-tariffed categories have declined from um, the first quarter of 2018 to the first quarter of 2019. And of course, I mean, President Trump would say this is all great um, because it's going to provide room for all these US manufacturers to get in and start producing things themselves. Have we seen domestically made goods filling the gap? So unfortunately, we can't see that from the data we have because there are trade data, so we see only the imports. What I would say is that when you look at the at these imports number, it has clearly has had a very disruptive effect on US imports from China. It has had a disruptive effect on US imports, total total imports from uh, the world in, in total, as we can see this $10 billion worth um, of goods that didn't enter the US. And that's because China was such a dominant player, such a big player across those categories, that as a rest of factories in the rest of the world were not big enough to pick up the slack right. and to offset the effect. And because many of those goods are actually intermediate goods, goods that US factories would use in their production process, it is likely to have a crippling impact on US industry. Because basically what happens is that part of the su- their supply chain, the backward looking parts, the Uh, their access to supply has been broken. Maeva, uh, thank you very much. I hope we have you on again as we uh, track the impact of this trade war. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Stephanomics. Join us next week for more on-the-ground insight into the global economy. In the meantime, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal, website, app, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love it if you took the time to rate and review our show so it can reach more people. And for more news and analysis through the week from Bloomberg Economics, you just have to follow at Economics on Twitter. You can also find me on at my Stephanomics. This episode was written and reported by Anuban Nag and Vrishti Benival. I should mention that you also heard a clip in that piece from Christine Lagarde, which was actually recorded at a Bloomberg event in December 2016. It was produced by Magnus Hendrickson and edited by Nasreen Saria and Scott Lamman, who's also the executive producer of Stephanomics. Special thanks to Mihir Sharma and Maiva Cousin. Francesca Levy is the head of Bloomberg Podcasts.